Today, you're right here with us. We humble ourselves before you. And thank you for loving us all the way to the cross. Thank you for giving your life for us, the greatest gift we have ever received. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that we would open up our hearts to you, God. You are first and foremost in our lives. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, Christmas is an amazing time. If I ask my kids what holiday do you like the best, Easter or Christmas, they'll usually say Christmas. But both are amazing seasons in the history of the church. Jesus born as a little baby in Bethlehem. Easter, he lays down his life for us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the sad thing is, over the years, I've encountered some people who've told me, Mel, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. It's connected to a pagan holiday. Mel, we shouldn't do it on December 25th. We have no idea when Jesus is born. So really, we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. And there are people who actually do that. And there are all these little conspiracies and controversies surrounding Christmas. So I thought I'd do something I've never done before. I want to address some of them, some of the major ones that I've heard. Because you may hear them, and when you do, I want you to have an answer. At least an idea of what to say. So I've given you a page of notes. You don't have to fill in any blanks. It's all there for you. I want to talk about this today. Questions about Christmas, but we're afraid to ask. But we're afraid to ask. We're going to talk about them today. So those questions will be answered. The bottom line is this. Christmas is a wonderful time of year. But some controversies and conspiracies about Christmas have been swirling around for years. These controversies should be dealt with so that our joy during the Christmas season will not be hindered. I don't want you to have any hindered joy uh, this Christmas season. I want you to know what the answers are to some of these controversies. Love for you to open your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. And as you know, Micah, and if you don't have your Bibles, there should be one nearby. Uh, Micah 5 is page 779 in your chair Bibles, so you can find it pretty easily. Micah 5, chapter 2. Now, as you may know, from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve fell, Adam and Eve, real people in a real place, called the Garden of Eden, they rebelled against God, they disobeyed God, sin came into the world, and death as a result of that sin. But do you know when the first prophecy was of the coming of the Messiah? What was the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah? Anybody know? The coming of the one who would solve the sin problem. Yeah, right in Genesis, right there, in the Garden of Eden. In fact, in fact, theologians call it the proto-first evangelium, the first good news. When God said that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The answer to sin was already in God's plan. He had a plan in place. And throughout the Old Testament, there's one prophecy after another. This thread of prophecy, the Messiah is coming that prophesied one is coming. And the day came after thousands of years of waiting when Jesus was born as a little baby in Bethlehem. I want to just highlight one of the prophecies. Micah 5, verse 2. Now, Micah was a prophet about 740 years before Christ. It was a dark time in Israel. The kings were worshiping idols. They'd neglected Yahweh. They neglected their God and turned to follow other gods. And Micah came on the scene with an amazing message of hope for Israel. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah. By the way, anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread, exactly. House of bread. I believe a beautiful foreshadowing of one of the I am's of Jesus. I am the what? Bread of life. Comes out of the house of bread in Israel, Bethlehem, which was also the city of David. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Here's the key line whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. In the Hebrew, that's a euphemistic, poetic way of saying his origin is from eternity. He's not going to be like everybody else. Radically different. 
radically different. That's why we worship him today. The most amazing life that ever lived on this planet. God in flesh who laid down his life for you. Who gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins so that we could have a relationship with God. So that our sins could be paid for. So that the righteousness of Christ, the purity of Christ could be given to you. An amazing gift. I hope you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. The fulfillment of that prophecy came in Luke chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1, chapter 2. Exactly, thank you. 2 verse 1 says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who was Caesar Augustus? He was the Roman emperor, right? Only the most powerful man on earth. That's all. That all the world should be registered. Why did Caesar Augustus want everyone to be registered? He wanted to tax them. He wanted to raise their taxes. Now, again, we don't have that problem here in America. But back then, they talked about this a lot, raising taxes. That's why he wanted everybody registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. There's the fulfillment of prophecy, right? Now, when you read this passage, I hope a little bit of an alarm goes off in your mind. God could have easily appeared to Joseph and Mary and said, hey guys, I know this is going to be hard for you, but Micah 5.2 says that Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. I want you to go down to Bethlehem and I want you to give birth to him there. He doesn't do that. Why not? I mean, he's, God has talked to many people throughout Scripture. Why didn't he just tell Joseph and Mary to go down to Bethlehem? I believe for this reason. He wanted to show you and me that our God is so powerful. He can direct the minds and decisions of the most powerful world leaders to do exactly what he wants them to do. He did that in this case with Caesar Augustus. Some people might say, what a coincidence. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that forced Joseph to leave Galilee, go down to Bethlehem just when Jesus was going to be born. What a coincidence. Now, what I think God is telling each one of us here today, I work in mysterious ways. You might not think it's me, but it's me. I work in ways that you might not even recognize or notice, but God is at work in your life in all these different ways. And when we look at the life and birth of Jesus, born around 5, 4 B.C., you might think, well, wasn't Jesus born like at 1 B.C. or 0? Why wasn't he born then? Well, we know that he was born before Herod the king died. Herod died 4 B.C. So we know the calendar, our calendar, which was started about 150, 200 years after Christ, was a bit off. Jesus was born about 5 B.C., maybe 4 B.C., before Herod died. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, the message is so positive. It's so wonderful. Uh, Behold, we bring you good news of great joy. I love the next line, which shall be for all people, for the entire world. This was announced to shepherds in the field. This is an amazing message for the entire world. And he gives, this passage gives Jesus three very important titles. Those titles are these. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. I love the fact, you know, the Bible doesn't say he gave us a builder. It didn't say he gave us a politician. Didn't give us, you know, an entertainer. God gave us someone who would meet our very greatest need. God gave us a Savior. You might say, oh, I don't need to be saved. Yes, you do. Because our sin separates us from God. We need a Savior. And the moment you recognize, yeah, you know, you're right. I need a Savior. That's the first step to God changing you forever. I need a Savior. 
And the same, next title is powerful. It's the word Christ, which is the Greek word for the word Messiah, reminding us of all those prophecies throughout the Old Testament, which are there to remind us that God is after you. God is pursuing you. He's after your heart. He wants you to willingly come to him and say, God, I give you my heart. I give you my life. It's yours. You created everything around me. You made me. You stamped your image upon me. And you love me enough to send the very best that you had your son. That's an awesome message. But the third title is the greatest of all. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. See, that's what makes his death on the cross worthy to take the sins of the world upon himself. Because in this baby, and I get it, it's a mystery. We can't fully understand it. But I've said this before here at Riverview Church. I don't want to worship a God that I can fully understand. He's too small of a God. I want to worship a a God that's described just like he is in the Bible. Far beyond anything I can imagine or think. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. How arrogant for me to think that I could ever fully understand this awesome God who exists in three persons, yet one God. And this God became flesh. A little baby in Bethlehem. I don't fully get it. But he was fully God as that little baby in Bethlehem, worthy to take the sins of the entire world upon himself. And all the Christmas traditions that we use to remember this amazing birth, like I know some of mine, string lights, you know, the lights that we put in our house and around the outside of our house. To me, and I share this with the kids, it's a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. All the singing that we do, the carols and all the choirs that exist during Christmas reminds us of the joy that Jesus brings into the world as this little baby. And to decorate evergreen trees, I tell the kids, it's a reminder to us, since these trees are evergreen, the forever life Jesus brought into the world. And by the way, a beautiful foreshadowing of this baby born to die on a cross, on a tree, for you and for me. That's how much God loves you. And I think it behooves us as parents, grandparents, even as we talk with friends, to let people know these are what all these little traditions of Christmas point to. There's a meaning behind every one of them. But I've had people over the years say to me, Mel, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. It's tied to a pagan culture, a pagan celebration. Now, in the, in the Bible and in other literature, if you see the word pagan, it basically means another religion that follows another God other than Christ. And the word pagan is used. And people have said to me, there, there are pagan festivals that are held during the Christmas season. We shouldn't celebrate Christmas. In fact, we don't really know when Jesus was born. So why do we celebrate on December 25th? I've had all these questions brought to me over the years about Christmas, diminishing Christmas, uh, in essence saying we shouldn't be celebrating the way we are. Now we know that we are to celebrate, right? Because even the angels, when they announced it to the shepherds, They sang glory to God in the highest. There was a party in heaven when Jesus was born. And it makes sense that we should celebrate the birth of Christ as well. So I want to address some of these controversies that I've heard over the years. And you'll probably hear them as well. So take these notes, bring them with you in case you ever hear them. Here's the first controversy. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Now let me ask you, does anybody really know when Jesus was born. Do we really know for sure? No, we don't. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. And people have said to me, well, there you go. December 25th matches a pagan feast or celebration. So therefore, this is an extension of a pagan celebration. That's not true. And what I share with people is something that many people don't know. In the second century, around 140, 150, 160 BC, there was a well-known Roman historian by the name of Sextus Julius Africanus. He wrote a history of the world. It was a five-volume set. And when he came to the life of Jesus, he made some assumptions, and whether they're correct or not, we don't know. We're not sure, 
But he believed the incarnation, the moment of conception, when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, happened on March 25th. So if you forward that nine months, he dated the birth of Christ on December 25th. Now, was he right? We don't know. It's possible. We're not sure. But this is the point. When he dated the birth of Christ on December 25th, it became well accepted in the Christian church that December 25th was the birthday of Christ. That began to spread among the early church as the birthday of Jesus. Now again, we don't know for sure, but that became accepted in the early church. And as you know, after that, after Sextus Africanus, this historian lived, the Emperor Constantine was the first emperor to become a Christian. Before that, Christians were being killed. They were being thrown in, in, into a, a Colosseum with the lions. Christians being martyred for their faith until Constantine became a believer in Christ. He issued what is known today as the Edict of Milan, which officially tolerated and favored the Christian faith. Later, the Christian faith would become the official state religion of the Roman Empire. Great thing. It allowed the church to worship freely in the Roman Empire. In 336 is the first reliable record that we have of Romans and Christians and Gentiles in the empire of the Romans to celebrate the birth of Christ. Happened in 336 A.D., as they began to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, at that time, there was a pagan festival known as Saturnalia, which is a pagan festival to celebrate the god Saturn. In fact, every time you write the word Saturday, what is that a reference to? The god Saturn, the Roman god Saturn. When you write Thursday, what's that a reference to? The God for. There are many things that have worked their way into our culture that we have totally redefined them. I'm sure you don't think of the God for when you write Thursday, but that's how Thursday was named. But it's been redefined, given a new meaning. Now, in the time of Christ, there was a celebration known as Saturnalia. It was to celebrate the god Saturn. It went from December 17th to the 24th. Later, Romans added another celebration known as Sol Invictus, which literally means to the unconquered sun. They celebrated on December 25th the winter solstice. Now, in our calendar, it's December 21st. They celebrated it on December 25th. The unconquered sun on December 25th. Christianity, though, became the state religion in around the mid-300s A.D. of the Roman Empire. So what Constantine did is he took all of those celebrations, the celebration of Saturnalia, the Sol Invictus celebration, and all those things, and he began to celebrate on December 25th, the date recognized by Julius Africanus about 150 years earlier as the birthday of Christ on December 25th. He basically said, hey, we're doing away with those celebrations. We're going to celebrate the birth of Christ, known as the Feast of the Nativity. So it didn't emanate from a pagan celebration. It just happened to land on the same day. He gave a positive alternative to a pagan celebration. The sinful customs were done away with and other elements were redeemed. Let me uh, kind of give you a quote from an historian. He said this, although some elements of Christ Christmas celebrations, for example, bells, candles, holly, Yule decorations are mentioned in the history of pagan worship. The use of such items in one's home in no way indicates a return to paganism. Christians simply celebrate Christmas to remember the birth of our Lord and Savior. So, for example, a candle. Yeah, a candle was probably used in pagan celebrations. But it doesn't mean that we as Christians can't use candles in our celebrations. 
For someone to say, hey, when you light a candle during Christmas, that's a pagan element of worship. No. A candle is amoral. It's a tool. What is the meaning you ascribe to the lighting of that candle? For us in our home, the meaning of everything that we do is very clear. It's to celebrate the birth and life of Jesus Christ. So we're not to shy away from those things just because somewhere these things were used in a pagan act of worship. Probably all these things were used long before these celebrations ever existed. But yes, some of those elements were used in pagan worship. But that doesn't mean we can't use them for better things. Uh, the word that you see on the scene, uh, screen is Christianized that we've taken these elements and given them a much greater and truer meaning. Here's another quote. However, some traditions associated with Christmas that may have been similar to those of pagan holidays, these were Christianized and given new meaning by the church. Now, in my thinking, that was ingenious. I love the fact that it worked out this way, that the birth of Christ happened to land on pagan holidays. And Constantine had this wonderful alternative to give to his people. We're not going to worship the God of Saturn anymore. We're not going to worship the unconquered son. We're going to worship the true son of God by our celebration of the feast of the nativity. So as you uh, think about all these things, the amazing impact that Constantine had as the first Christian emperor, even though he was raised in the cult of the unconquered son God. He turned from that and was responsible for turning Roman culture toward Christ and away from paganism. And the first reliable historical evidence of Christmas being observed dates from his reign. He had an amazing impact on this world because he was a believer in Christ. So here's the deal. The, the scripture is really free about how you celebrate things like Christmas. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 14. Let's open our Bibles again to Romans chapter 14. This is a great passage to keep very fresh in your mind because there will be times you're going to meet people who are going to worship a little bit differently than you are. And Romans 14 addresses that very issue. Romans 14, verse 5, says this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What issue is Paul talking about here? What is he addressing? Anybody know? The Sabbath, exactly. And as you know, God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That was one of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath in the Jewish week is Saturday. The principle of the Sabbath is this. In your life, never be so busy that you don't have time to worship God. So God allowed one day of rest, a time when the Jews were to focus on worshiping God. When the church was born, the church began to meet on Sunday. The first day of the week. Why? That's when Jesus rose from the dead. Many people took the concept of the Sabbath and took it from Saturday and brought it over to Sunday. Now, nowhere in the New Testament is the keeping of the Sabbath commanded. It's, it's not commanded. And Paul is addressing the struggle that some Christians had. There were new, new believers uh, in the church that took the Sabbath concept, brought it over to Sunday and said, I'm not working on Sunday. Just not doing it. I'm going to make it a day of worship. If you're a believer like that, that is fantastic. I love that you are fully convinced in your mind that you should do that. That is a wonderful thing. And for many years of my life, that was true. Now, he addresses the other viewpoint, though. There were other Christians who said, hey, it's great that you worship God on the Sabbath and that's a special day for you in the week but in my thinking I believe every day is the Lord's day and I want to make time every day to worship God so every day in my mind is alike well how do we handle that difference in the church he says it right here each one should be fully convinced in his own mind and he goes on to say you're not to judge one another in those areas of freedom but obviously there are differences right 
There's some of you who say, you know what, I, I do some work on Sunday, but I make sure throughout the week that I have a time to worship the Lord. Others of you say, hey, you know what, no, Sunday's a special day. That's where I live out the Sabbath principle. I don't do any work, and I totally focus on God. Both are amazing. Wonderful ways to approach your walk with God. But we're not to uh, criticize and condemn someone who believes differently than we do. So if you are fully convinced that you cannot in good conscience observe a particular Christmas tradition, then don't observe it. In your home, don't observe it. If you are fully convinced that a specific tradition is too steeped in a pagan history or a pagan culture, and you can't honor God by uh, participating in that tradition, then reject that tradition. Don't follow it. You have the freedom to do that. However, if you are fully convinced that you can honor and worship God through a particular tradition, then honor and worship God. Make sure your kids understand why these elements are part of your Christmas celebration. Make sure people come to your home, if, you, if you're asked, you can give an answer as to why you celebrate in this way. See, my principle, and I wrote this down as I was preparing the message this week, Christianize without compromise. Don't ever bring an element into your worship of Christ that the Bible specifically forbids. And certainly the use of candles or bells or decorations in your home, the Bible does not forbid. Which leads me to the second question. Is the Christmas tree a pagan intrusion into Christmas? I've had people say that to me. No, you shouldn't have a Christmas tree. That's a pagan thing. And the Bible tells you not to do that. We'll get to that in just a second. Well, uh, the best historical records that we have have concluded this. The modern custom of a Christmas tree does not come from any form of paganism. Taking a tree, bringing it into your home, and decorating it is found nowhere that we can find in any pagan worship. There's no evidence of any pagan religion decorating a special holiday tree for their midwinter festivals. So there isn't a direct connection. But people have said to me, well, Mel, uh, there, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about this. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. How did it start? Well, uh, what we can tell from our best understanding of history is that in the 16th centuries, Germans, Barbara, Germans... See, something came out of, really good out of Germany, right? It was amazing. <laughs> Germans began putting full-on trees in homes and decorating them for Christmas. I used to put up, like, fake trees until I married Barbara, and Barbara's like, no more fake trees. It's over. We're bringing a real tree in the home. I thought, okay, you're in charge. I'll do it your way. So we have a real tree in our home. But that's where we believe it started, around the 16th century. And uh, some actually built Christmas pyramids out of wood and decorated them, and evergreen branches and candles were put on these wooden pyramids. Again, kind of representing the tree. Uh, this began in Germany around the 16th century. In fact, Martin Luther is rumored to have been one of the first people to add actually lit lighted candles he was inspired by the way the stars shone over the evergreens outside and decided to bring a little of that magic indoors so he brought in lighted candles I'm so glad we don't do that today amen <laughs> we would have to have about 20 fire extinguishers located strategically all around the house but he, he was one of the first to do that so a beautiful tradition that started in Germany. Our modern tree evolved from these early German traditions. The custom most likely came to the USA with Hessian troops that came here during the American Revolution or with German immigrants that came to Pennsylvania and Ohio. Now people have said to me, well, now there's a verse in the Bible that talks about Christmas trees. And I'm like, okay, I, I know a verse you're talking about, but let's turn there. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's right after the book of Psalms, right? Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Jeremiah chapter 10. And I'm going to read starting verse 2. And you may have people that will turn to this passage and say, this talks about the Christmas trees and how we shouldn't do it. 
And you're going to read and think, wow, it does sound like a Christmas tree. Let's read it. God says this, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. And people have said to me, see mill right there, no Christmas trees, can't cut down a tree, decorate it with silver and gold. And the Bible says it right here. Now, if there's ever a verse that you are shown that seems to indicate something that is different from what you believe, what's the first thing you should do? Read the context. Exactly. So many groups, so many religions have gotten into trouble by pulling a verse totally out of its context. And if you do that, and many people do, by the way, when they pull it out of context, they can almost create any sort of belief system they want. The first thing you should do is say, hey, that's an interesting passage. Let's read the context. Go to the very next verse. In fact, I'll read verse 4 again. They decorate with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Clearly, the context is talking about making an idol. You cut down a tree, the axeman fashions it into an animal or some sort of being that people worship. The context is clearly making an idol. It has nothing to do with Christmas trees, not at all. It's basically saying, don't make a worthless idol. They're dead. They can't do anything. It has nothing to do with Christmas trees. That verse has totally been taken out of context. So you don't have to worry about violating a passage in Scripture if you have a Christmas tree in your home. Here's the next question. Where did Santa Claus come from? Please don't say the North Pole. Please don't say that. But it is an amazing thing. And if you're like me, you're a bit troubled by how Santa Claus has taken center stage during the Christmas season. If you ask 100 kids... Who's the hero of Christmas? What's the number one answer? Santa Claus. He's taken so much attention away from Jesus. And obviously, parents, it's up to you about if you work Santa Claus into your Christmas celebration, and if you do, how you do it. But we should understand how this mythical figure came about. The reality is this. Santa Claus is based on a great Christian by the name of St. Nicholas. He was given sainthood by the Catholic Church. So he's often referred to as St. Nicholas of Myra, which in today's map would be Turkey. came from the region of Turkey. During the 4th century, about the same time that the Christian faith was made the state religion of the Roman Empire, he was born to Christian parents who uh, left him a large inheritance, which he distributed to the poor. He was known for his generosity. He became a priest at a young age. His reputation for giving gifts anonymously began to grow. In fact, stories were told about him taking bags of money and throwing them into the homes of poor people at night because he didn't want to be identified. He didn't want to be seen. He wanted to do it anonymously. And that has, over the years, eventually evolved into what we know today as Santa Claus. My guess is St. Nicholas would be heartbroken if he knew that his life led to Santa Claus, which has taken so much attention away from Jesus. So I want to give you two reminders as you celebrate Christmas. Reminder number one, Jesus should always be the hero of Christmas to your kids and to your grandkids, not Santa Claus. Not Santa Claus. Jesus is always the hero of Christmas. Tell your kids that. St. Nicholas worshipped Jesus. And here's a second reminder. Jesus is ultimately the giver of every gift we receive, not Santa Claus. Make sure your kids know that every gift they receive ultimately comes from Jesus. Not even the parents. Because as a parent, I know that everything I have 
is a result of the life and breath that Jesus has given me. Without that, I would have nothing. So every gift I give my kids ultimately comes from Jesus, and my kids need to know that. Here's the fourth question. Why do some people write Xmas instead of Christmas? I've had people say, I am so bothered by these Christians who write Xmas, and they're taking Jesus' name out of Christmas. Now, let me say this. Whenever I get a chance to leave Christ in the word Christmas, I do. But you also need to understand that writing the X there does not mean people want to X out Christ. Let me tell you the origin of that tradition. And it began all the way back in the time of Constantine. Evidence of Constantine doing it. Let me tell you how it happened. As you know, the word Christmas comes from two words being pushed together. Christ and Mass. Mass meant a church service. So when they would have a church service to celebrate the birth of Christ, that was the Christ Mass, which evolved to the word Christmas. Now the word Christ, the first letter in the Greek is the Greek letter key. I'll show it to you in the bottom. On the left you see the Greek word Christos. The first letter is the X, which is the Greek letter key. It's how you spell the name Christ. So even back in Constantine's day and others throughout time have taken that Greek letter X as a way to shorten the word Christmas. Now, I never do that in my letters or my cards or whatever. Sometimes in my personal notes, I'll say, uh, you know, Xmas party at the Johnson's house at 5 p.m. But when I write a letter, I always leave the name of Christ in the word Christmas. Or if I write it publicly, I want to make sure that any chance I get to say the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to use it. I want people to see it. But please don't assume that people who put the Greek letter key are Xing out the name of Jesus. And we shouldn't judge them in that way for that. In early days, in fact, when Christians would see each other, they had a secret symbol they would use to identify if a person was a Christian. As you know, in the early church, people were being killed who loved Jesus. They were martyred, thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. So what Christians would do is they would walk up, and if they were talking to somebody, they'd write a little X in the ground. The other person would see that if they were a believer and they wrote the X in the ground with their foot, both of them felt safe to be able to share their faith in Christ with one another. So that was used as a symbol, even in the early church, of the name of Christ. What was another symbol that was used? Yeah, the fish. Let me show that to you. There are many stories about believers using the fish symbol. Why did they use that? Here's the reason. The word fish in the Greek is the word ichthos. The early church used the letters of that word to create an acronym. You see it below the fish there on the screen. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Every letter representing an important word in the gospel message. In the Greek, it looks like this. Jesus Christos Theu Weos Soter. Every one of those words matches the letter of the word ichthos. And the symbol of the fish became a secret code for Christians to identify that a very important message and that that person was a believer in Christ. So I always love putting the name Christ in Christmas. I would encourage you not to take it out. But please don't look at someone and say, hey, uh, that Christian put an X there. I can't believe they X'd Jesus out of Christmas. That's probably not what they're doing. We need to be a little more patient than that and understand they're writing the first letter of Jesus' name in that shortened version of Christmas. And lastly, as we close today, it's this. Why do we give gifts to one another? And how did that start? You probably know it already. In the very beginning of salvation, God had a plan that he would give his son. And certainly Christmas is a time of gift giving. And if you're like me at times, you struggle with the materialism of it. So many gifts given to people and spending so much money. The retailers, they love it. It makes their year when it comes to revenue. 
But I would encourage you not to be caught up in the materialism of Christmas, but to keep the core message of it exactly what it is. This celebrates the birth of the most important life that ever lived on this planet, Jesus, who changed us by giving his life for our sins, paying the price for our sins. So it started with God the Father giving his son as a gift for us and then Jesus continuing that by giving his life for us. And that every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it remains today as the gift of salvation. Like Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord greatest gift you will ever receive and my prayer would be that everyone here today has made a decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ but as we think about those gifts remember the wise men they came and they gave their gifts to who they gave their gifts to Jesus right and we don't really know how many wise men we are there are uh, we probably remember the carol we three kings of Orion are. That's a great carol. I love it in one sense. But we don't know that there were three of them. We just know there were three gifts. We know they weren't kings. The Bible identifies them as magi or wise men. And they didn't come from the Orient. They probably came from the region of Persia. But other than that, it's a great carol. We probably won't sing it that much here at Riverview. But a lot of errors in that carol. But three wise men came and laid their gifts, or wise men came and laid their gifts at the feet of Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by the way, not at the manger. If you read the Bible, it says that the star led them to the house where Jesus was. And you probably remember that Herod killed every baby boy under the age of two. So we know the wise men didn't come to the manger. They went to a house. Jesus could have been as old as two, probably younger than that. Herod was probably being extra safe to kill every boy in the region of Bethlehem under the age of two to try to stop this king of the Jews. But it's an amazing reminder to us, and the question that we should ask ourselves as we close is this. What is your worship gift to God motivated by your love for him? We're so focused on getting gifts for everyone else, and it's a good thing. But do you think every Christmas, what is my gift to God this Christmas? As the wise men gave their gifts to Jesus, we should be thinking about maybe what's a new area in my life that I need to give control of to Jesus. I want to give this as a gift to him. I want to give more of my time as a gift to him. I want to focus on him better in 2020 than I did in 2019. What is your gift to Jesus this year? Motivated by your love for him. Not to get anything back. Hey, if I give Jesus this gift, maybe he'll bless my life more. No, just that as a motivation of your love for Jesus. What's your gift to him this Christmas? It's an important question to consider. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. As your hearts are bowed today, I want to ask you if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. This little baby who changed everything and he came for you. And that as you approach this Christmas season, that you would be sure to put Christ at the very center of everything that you do. That there's a meaning behind every little symbol, every light, every tree, every decoration as to why we do what we do to celebrate this amazing life. Lord Jesus, we love you. We put you at the very center of our lives and may we, as a, a light for you, shine brightly in this world that's groping in darkness. They need to know that there is a God who loves them and who loved them all the way to the cross. Lord Jesus, we worship you today. We give you the praise because you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and sing this song. And he shall reign forevermore, forevermore.
Amen. So we have elders and home group leaders who would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. Please greet one another and live this week. All for him. God bless you. See you on the patio. How you doing? Good to see you. I'm doing well.